So in 2017, uh, Sea Shepherd, off the coast of Africa, located a notorious fishing vessel called the Libico II. This vessel was internationally blacklisted on three different lists. It's estimated that this vessel, this one ship, was responsible for killing 500,000 sharks every year. So you do the math, you know, four years later, just by stopping this one illegal vessel, we've saved the lives of over two million sharks. That's one vessel women's rights, human rights, animal rights, environmental protections. Every one of us plays a role in standing up and saying that this is not okay. The status quo must change. It's time to change the world. It's time for something better. We're telling the stories of people who are changing the world and how you can help. Our daily actions have a massive impact. So what will we do about it? We can remake the world because guess what? We can. Hi, everyone. I'm Nathan Gardner, and this is We Can Remake the World, a podcast about people who are changing the world and how you can help. We like to start every episode with a few pieces of good news. And in the spirit of our most recent episode, All About Hope, today we're focusing on stories of hope, hopeless circumstances that have taken a turn for the better. So, here's the good news for today. First, we go to Ohio, where the Cuyahoga Valley National Park, just south of Cleveland, offers us a glimpse into what's possible when people commit to cleaning up their own mess. The story here begins in 1940, before the national park existed, when a 200-acre plot of land in the area within what is now the national park was set aside and used as a waste dump. First, private citizens dumped their trash and waste. This was before local cities offered waste management. Then, later, industry, including manufacturers, chemical companies, and more, began relying on this 200-acre plot of land to dispose of toxic industrial wastes of all kinds. In 1974, then-President Gerald Ford designated the area that includes this 200-acre plot of land the Cuyahoga National Recreation Area, but visitors were getting sick. Because of years of accumulated toxic heavy metals, pesticides, arsenic, paints, and other industrial waste products, the soil and water were so polluted that the soil was actually flammable. The National Park Service knew something needed to be done, so they committed to a 25-year cleanup program. But a program like that, with a scale that large, needs funding. They hired a former Colorado assistant attorney general named Sean Mulligan to represent the National Park Service in a lawsuit against corporations including Chevron and Chrysler, Ford Motor Company, General Motors, Federal Metal Company, 3M, and others. The lawsuit was eventually settled giving the National Park Service $21 million in funding to manage the cleanup, with Ford and GM committing additional resources to actually carry out the cleanup themselves, with oversight from the National Park Service. It's often cheaper if companies can do it themselves, and then if they report to the public organization, there can be accountability. Thousands of barrels of toxic waste and nearly 400,000 tons of contaminated soil were removed from what is now the National Park. In some cases, up to 20 feet of soil had to be taken out to prevent toxic waste from infecting future human, animal, and plant residents and visitors. In 2021, the National Park Service officially announced the completion of the project just last year, which has turned this former deadly dumping site into a thriving wetland with native grasses, wildflowers, and returning wildlife. This story gives me hope because it's a microcosm of what's possible around the world. People recognizing the harm they've caused holding the ones responsible accountable for contributing to the remedying of whatever the problem is, and then designing a program of restoration and carrying it out in collaboration with public, private, and community interests and groups. This is the kind of story we could see play out across every continent where environmental exploitation and destruction have taken place over decades. And it also shows that even the most toxic, hopeless situations can be remedied and restored with enough resources and commitment from people. 
Our next piece of good news comes from Detroit and Assam, India, where native wildlife is rebounding in both places. In Detroit, wild river otters have been spotted in the Detroit River, which separates the United States and Canada, for the first time in over 100 years. Otter and beaver populations were essentially wiped out in this region by fur traders in the late 19th century, and pollution prevented these animals from rebounding and returning as the fur trade dwindled. But wild otters released in Ohio years ago have made their way back to Michigan, which is a hugely positive sign for the health of local ecosystems. Otters are a keystone species that indicate healthy waters, so their return means conditions in the fresh waters around Michigan are finally improving. In the state of Assam, India, the greater one-horned rhino is rebounding after coming so close to extinction 50 years ago that only 100 individuals lived still in the wild. Now, that number has risen to just over 4,000 individuals, thanks to strict protection and conservation measures taken in India and in neighboring Nepal, the only two countries where the one-horned rhino exists. Populations were also helped by a baby boom during the COVID pandemic, which came about due to many protected wildlife areas being closed to the public over the last couple of years. We love a silver lining after everything we went through, right? This encouraging story is motivating India to continue to expand the size of its wildlife-protected areas, which is already happening throughout the country, and to continue successful patrolling of these areas to protect wildlife from poachers and other human threats. Both stories offer more evidence that when humans give nature the space to recover, it will do so, happily and quickly. Let's keep telling stories like this to show us what's possible everywhere. And finally, we go to Denver, Colorado, where the first carbon-negative hotel in the United States is being built. The Populous Hotel, designed by Chicago's Studio Gang and funded by developer Urban Villages, is set to open in late 2023 on a prominent city corner, which is the former site of the first gas station in the state of Colorado. A bit of poetic justice to balance the scales there. Using design elements inspired by Colorado's iconic aspen trees, the building will be a model for future real estate projects where sustainability and carbon offsetting will be as much of a priority as profitability. John Buerge, chief development officer of developer Urban Villages, was quoted as saying, Internally, we often say if we can show people how to make money doing the right thing to change the world, it can be replicated. We have to make sure that the decisions we're making are good for the planet and good for the business. No argument here. Let's get to our episode. So often we look out at the world and wonder how we can make a difference. The challenges feel so large, and an answer to the question of what can I do can feel so far away. Captain Paul Watson of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society found his answer, and it didn't involve sitting back and letting someone else solve the problem for him. A founding director of the global environmental nonprofit Greenpeace back in the 1970s, Paul Watson wanted to get things done. He wasn't interested in protesting, petitioning, or politics. He wanted to take action, to disrupt the systems of exploitation he saw playing out all around him. So he did. Captain Watson founded Sea Shepherd in 1977 to protect and conserve all marine wildlife. Sea Shepherd works to conserve all living things in the world's oceans through direct action campaigns, media campaigns, and partnerships with governments and other global nonprofits and NGOs. Sea Shepherd is probably most widely known for the many times it's been featured in documentaries around the world, like The Cove, Defend, Conserve, Protect, and Sea Spiracy the hugely popular Netflix film released in 2021, which I think many of us watched in horror during lockdown last year. Sea Shepherd was also the focus of the popular reality TV show Whale Wars, which aired for seven years on the Animal Planet channel in the U.S. from 2008 to 2015. There's a reason Sea Shepherd comes up anytime the topic of protecting the oceans is raised. 
For many years, the Sea Shepherd team has been physically out on the open ocean, disrupting illegal fishing operations and documenting evidence of it being carried out around the world, sometimes putting their safety at risk. But why? What caused Captain Paul Watson to create this organization to fight illegal fishing operations? What is Sea Shepherd so concerned about? Are our oceans really in need of so much protection from illegal fishing? How much is actually going on, anyway? A lot, it turns out. So much, actually, that if you ate seafood in the last week, there's a 60% chance it was caught illegally. Illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, or IUU fishing, is a huge global problem, and it's destroying our oceans. There are international laws protecting wildlife, and ensuring sustainable fishing practices throughout the oceans, but they're often not followed and rarely well enforced. For example, in the United States, which is the world's largest seafood importer, only 40% of the seafood imported is properly traced to its source, to the people who caught it, with detailed information about how much was caught from where and how. So this means that 60% of the seafood in the U.S. has very little transparency, which opens the door for illegal fishing operations to sell their products in the U.S., and in many cases in markets all around the world. The journal Marine Policy found in 2014 that at least 32% of fish sold in all restaurants and markets like supermarkets was caught illegally. 32%. And many believe that the number is currently at least 40%. The United States imported an estimated $2.4 billion worth of seafood derived from illegal fishing in 2019 alone. The seafood industry is notoriously difficult to regulate, for obvious reasons, because so much of the work is done away from land, where the oversight is almost non-existent. A fishing vessel can also mislabel what they sell when they get to port to sell their catch, leading to more problems with tracking, fishing quota management, and consumer transparency. The ocean conservation nonprofit Oceana released a report which stated that 44% of seafood was mislabeled in American retail outlets. The organization carried out DNA testing of random samples of seafood taken from restaurants and grocery stores throughout the United States, Canada, and other countries, and the results were alarming. For any sushi eaters, your menus are actually lying to you, and the restaurants have no idea. This report by Oceana found that 74% of fish used in sushi restaurants overall was not what it claimed to be. That's huge! Three quarters of the fish on the menu is not what it says it is. Tuna and red snapper were especially inaccurate. There's a 59% chance that your spicy tuna roll doesn't actually have any tuna in it. Which begs the question, what did you eat? And this isn't an isolated problem. In Northern California, 76% of sushi restaurants sold mislabeled fish, so you can't trust the menus. In New York, Washington, D.C., and Chicago, every single sushi restaurant that was tested was selling some mislabeled fish, at least. And in Houston and Austin, every single sample tested was mislabeled. Nothing was what the menu said it was. Not a fan of sushi? You're still not safe. Shark meat, often high in toxic mercury, was found in fish tacos in California. Toxic pufferfish, labeled as monkfish, to escape import laws in the U.S. has caused serious illness. Other commonly mislabeled fish are halibut, grouper, cod, and the endangered Chilean sea bass. And salmon is mislabeled as well. Half of the crab cakes sold in Maryland and Washington, D.C. were made with an Asian crab species, not the overfished local blue crab that the fishing industry promised they were selling to markets and restaurants. This shows how easy it is for fishing vessels to lie, cheat, and steal from the ocean with no regulation and then sell their products anyway to a market where demand for seafood is so high and growing that they can find a way to get away with it. For this and many other reasons, Sea Shepherd has been watching global fishing operations closely for decades and in many cases, directly intervening to block illegal fishing operations, to protect not just our oceans and our wildlife, but also to protect us from ourselves. 
When illegal fishing goes down, our oceans become healthier, and we need healthy oceans, now more than ever. As we continue to raise billions and billions of animals around the world for slaughter for human consumption, we're compromising ecosystems on land and in the oceans. We currently raise and kill over 70 billion land animals and almost 100 million tons of ocean animals a year, which alone produces more greenhouse gases than the entire transportation industry. We have to speak about ocean animals in weight because the numbers of individual animals being caught and killed are so high that nobody can truly accurately measure them. 40% of all the fish taken from the ocean is actually fed to chickens and pigs and domestic house cats. 2.8 million tons of fish go to cats alone every year. This is food that could be feeding people. We are literally eating the ocean alive to feed our appetite for animal products and to feed our pets. How does this affect the health of the oceans and the health of the planet, other than the greenhouse gases? Since 1950, we've lost 40% of our phytoplankton population in the global oceans, which provides 50% or more of the oxygen we breathe throughout the planet. Whales contribute to phytoplankton ecosystems greatly, and since we've killed 90% of the ocean's whales, we are losing phytoplankton at an alarming rate. Our hunger for seafood is now endangering our long-term ability to breathe. According to the Pew Charitable Trust, in 2014 alone, roughly 500 million metric tons of tuna was caught worldwide. Want to know how many pounds that is? 11,023,115,000 pounds in one year. According to Science Daily, Seabird populations declined by 70% between 1950 and 2010 due to depleted fisheries in the world's oceans, and researchers estimate that about 100 million sharks are killed per year, which means at least 11,500 and as many as 30,000 are killed per hour. Sharks are going extinct at a time when we are just beginning to understand how crucial they are to marine ecosystems. Every year, over 300,000 dolphins, whales, and porpoises are killed by fishing operations, including over 10,000 that are killed off the coast of France annually. This isn't just in Asia or remote corners of the ocean. And the reason these numbers are so huge is because of how many fishing vessels there are out there on the waters. There are currently about 4.6 million confirmed commercial fishing vessels on the oceans, but that doesn't include vessels fishing illegally, necessarily. The total number is likely closer to 5 million, and many of these vessels are massive and operating every day. Now it starts to make sense how this alone is having such a huge impact on greenhouse gas emissions. When illegal fishing is happening, which includes any vessel not following quotas, species-specific restrictions, fishing in protected areas, or violating national boundaries, which is all happening all the time, those 5 million vessels can do whatever they want to generate as much profit as possible. There are human rights implications here, too. According to the International Labor Organization, 24,000 fisheries workers die every year on the job. That's a huge number and it's 16 times higher than the mortality rates for firefighters or police in the United States, and 40 times the U.S. national average for other industries. Ever wonder how canned tuna was kept so cheap? Well, modern slavery and human trafficking are part of the answer to that question. Forced labor in the seafood trade has been reported in 47 countries, with high-risk countries including Ireland, Taiwan, South Korea, China, Honduras, South Africa, the Philippines, and Vietnam, just to name some. Greenpeace successfully petitioned the U.S. Department of Labor in 2020 to include seafood caught by China and Taiwan on the list of goods produced by child labor or forced labor. But this isn't just about canned tuna. If you regularly eat sushi or sashimi in any restaurant in the United States or Europe, you're very likely to have consumed Chinese or Taiwanese caught fish, where human rights concerns are serious. I know that was a lot of numbers to throw at you, but I think it's important to understand the scale of what's going on out there and the scope, the impact of illegal fishing operations around the world. This is huge. So what can we do in the face of all this? What has Sea Shepherd done? Sea Shepherd has decided to become the only organization consistently enforcing international law 
on the open ocean. In its early days, Sea Shepherd was all about direct action. Sea Shepherd's first mission involved chasing a notorious illegal whaling vessel until the opportunity came to ram and damage the ship, which is what happened. Captain Paul Watson, who was on board, communicated his intention to ram the vessel to the crew so that they could maintain their own safety, and was successful in ramming this vessel three times to cause major damage. This speaks to what Captain Watson calls aggressive nonviolence, a tactic that Sea Shepherd has continued to employ to disrupt illegal fishing operations around the globe, being aggressive and assertive, but not causing harm, not injuring others. Sea Shepherd ships have also chased illegal fishing boats into ports around the world, where local authorities can detain and arrest the crews. And in some cases, this has led to official sinking of those illegal boats by the local governments. Sea Shepherd also records and documents illegal fishing operations to prove to authorities that vessels are breaking international law. What Sea Shepherd has recognized is that, unfortunately, nobody is truly protecting the oceans or marine wildlife consistently around the world, which is another way to say that nobody's protecting humanity from its own destruction of itself, since the health of our oceans is so closely tied to the health of our species. And instead of waiting for governments to step in or for industries to regulate themselves, Sea Shepherd has stepped up to take action. They've disrupted major illegal operations around the world, which we'll hear about in a moment, for decades, preventing the needless and illegal deaths of countless living things and holding the front line for the long-term health of our planet. Today we'll speak with Tamara Arenovich, longtime Sea Shepherd supporter and volunteer and currently a full-time member of the Sea Shepherd team. If you saw the Netflix documentary Seaspiracy, you may recognize Tamara. She was present with Ali Tabrizi, one of the filmmakers and the star of Seaspiracy, for the filming of the annual dolphin run and slaughter and capture of many dolphins in Taiji, Japan. Tamara helps us understand how Sea Shepherd's approach to ocean conservation has evolved, how they're partnering with governments around the world to extend their reach, why we must care about the oceans enough to get involved, and why she believes that if everyone could see what she's seen, the world would change overnight. So I'm really excited today to be speaking with Tamara Arenovich, Head of Media and Communications for the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. Thanks so much, Tamara, for making time for us. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm a fan of your show. Oh, thanks so much. Appreciate you saying that. And yeah, I mean, the pleasure is mine. I've been following Sea Shepherd for some time, and I think that it's a really important and inspiring organization. And I'm just excited to learn more, you know, to hear from your perspective about the work that Sea Shepherd does and how it does it. So if you don't mind, maybe just start us off by sharing, you know, what is Sea Shepherd and what makes it unique as far as how it carries out its work? Sure. Um, Well, I guess the short answer to that is that Sea Shepherd is an international nonprofit ocean conservation organization. You and perhaps some of your listeners might be familiar with Sea Shepherd already, perhaps from our work on the TV TV series Whale Wars, um, which featured our efforts to stop illegal whaling in the Southern Ocean. Sea Shepherd has been around for a very, very long time, actually since 1977, and there is so much more than illegal whaling that we're involved in today. So I look forward to speaking with you today and talking about some of the work that we're doing around the world and why this work is so critically important to you, to me, and to all of us in our future. I'd say a few features that are unique to Sea Shepherd are, number one, we are largely a volunteer-driven organization. And secondly, we are a direct action organization. Our mission is to defend marine wildlife in the world's oceans from illegal exploitation and environmental destruction. We partner with governments around the world to stop illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing in national waters. And we collaborate with conservation researchers contributing to scientific knowledge that's needed to shape policy and enhance protections for marine wildlife around the world. Yeah, I mean, the breadth is huge, you know, the research and sort of educational aspects and the diversity of the species that Sea Shepherd is focused on in its work. I mean, it's really impressive. I just want to start by asking you to elaborate on 
what makes something a direct action organization? You know, how is Sea Shepherd unique in that sense? Because I think that's really what encapsulates the personality of Sea Shepherd, um, this, this idea of direct action. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and direct action is a little bit of a loaded term. What does that actually mean? I, I suppose the answer to that is a little bit fluid. Direct action in its most I guess, concrete sense means we are intervening between the crimes that are taking place that are threatening marine wildlife and the perpetrators of those crimes. So in the past, um, back in our early years, we had a bit of a reputation as outlaws or (laughs) pirates, um, vigilantes of the sea that were fighting uh, to protect marine species. And indeed, our, our, our logo is a Jolly Roger. So I mean, I think that that's warranted. But the methods that we used in our early days, you know, physically intervening between an illegal whaling ship and the harpoon that's aimed for that whale, um, they made sense at the time. You know, like this was 20, 30 years ago, very few laws were in place, very little enforcement was in place. This was the way to truly make a difference at that time. And it was highly impactful and effective. Now, from our small grassroots beginnings, those early years, Sea Shepherd has evolved into something even more powerful and even more effective. We are um, an ocean conservation organization, but we're more than that. I would say that today, Sea Shepherd is really a global movement. And we are working with, in partnership with governments around the world to help protect marine wildlife from illegal exploitation in national waters all around the world. So direct action, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s versus today takes on a somewhat different form, but we still, you know, our priority is absolutely our clients, the whales, the dolphins, the the sharks and the sea turtles and other marine wildlife that so desperately need our help. And like I said, we have a number of instruments that we use, government partnerships, scientific collaborations to help us directly impact and mitigate these threats. Yeah, I think it's pretty amazing how the organization seems to have sort of matured in its approach. And, you know, not that it's immature to take direct action. Sometimes, as you said, that's the absolute best you know, path given the circumstances, but to understand at a certain point that there's more available to the organization. There are partnerships that can be built and through the greater movement that has been built and people's support and the sort of, you know, almost awareness that Sea Shepherd can bring, bringing those channels in as well, in addition to some of the direct action work that I know still happens and I can't wait to ask you more about. Um, would you speak about, you know, what do you do for Sea Shepherd? What brought you to the organization? What keeps you passionate about the work that Sea Shepherd does? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I wasn't always a, um, a marine ocean conservation activist. My background is actually in healthcare and academia, and I lived a relatively normal life for uh, many, many years. But in my spare time, when I could escape from you know office life, I um, I'm an avid scuba diver and free diver, and I've always had a love affair with the ocean. Um, if you've ever been underneath the waves, you understand what I'm talking about. It's a completely different world, and it's magical had a few incredible encounters. I was very fortunate to experience some, you know, close-up encounters with sharks, with endangered turtles. And these, um, you know, these experiences changed me and I felt a certain sense of of, of debt. Um, you know, I, I can think of one experience in particular where I had an amazing close-up encounter with a hammerhead shark off the coast of Hawaii. And uh, it was terrifying at the time. And it was also mesmerizing. And I left that, I left that dive a changed person sort of thinking, you know, realistically, that is not my environment. I'm slow. I'm awkward. I've got equipment attached to me. And if that animal truly was this mindless killing machine that, you know, that the media would have you believe, I would never even see it coming. I would have been dead in an instant. It didn't want to harm me. I had no business being there and it didn't want to harm me. And then I got to thinking about, you know, like how many of them do we harm? We can't say the same that the reverse is true. I mean, we kill hundreds of thousands of sharks every year without cause, you know? And so, 
I felt like a bit of a promise was made in that moment that I needed to do more and and to try to help. And so I did. I'm uh, I'm from Canada. I'm originally from Toronto. And uh, one freezing cold day in February, I happened to be walking around in the city and saw a bunch of activists demonstrating outside of the Japanese embassy. So cold. (laughs) February in (laughs) in Canada is cold. And uh, these people were standing out there so passionate, freezing. And um, so I kind of went to see what was going on. And it was a demonstration on World Love for Dolphins Day. It was Valentine's Day um, that was demonstrating against the annual... uh, uh, slaughter of dolphins that takes place six months out of the year every year off the coast of uh, Taiji in Japan. So that was my local Sea Shepherd chapter who was there demonstrating. It was my first uh, experience with them. I became a member not too long after that and helped locally to raise awareness, raise funds for our ships and our campaigns and so on. Um, after that, I ultimately kind of felt like I needed to continue doing more. Um, and that started me on my journey onto the ships and onto our ground campaigns around the world. Since that time, I've been a crew member on 10 Sea Shepherd campaigns directly from those bloody shores in Japan to, um, to the west coast of Canada and the BC salmon farms. Um, I've been in the Caribbean helping survivors of climate change-induced national disasters. I've uh, spent many years in Mexico helping protect the world's most endangered marine mammal, the vaquita porpoise. And I've also had the privilege of seeing some of the world's most pristine waters, the marine protected areas where we are actually protecting marine wildlife. I've had the absolute privilege to dive under those waters and see what the oceans can and should look like when we just let them be. You know, they have the ability to heal and to recover if we just stop applying such immense pressure. And it's magical and it's inspiring. And so so that's been my history on the ships. After that, I've kind of, at the moment, moved over into a bit more of a behind-the-scenes role, assisting with um, communications, helping to tell the story and highlight the incredible efforts that our crews and our volunteers are doing around the world to um, to, ch- to take on some of the biggest challenges facing our oceans and marine wildlife around the world. Hmm. My gosh, there's so much I want to ask you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I also want to ask you about the experience of being on these ships, because for people who aren't familiar with Sea Shepherd, there are volunteers who work on the ships who actually are involved in this direct action. You'll speak about it certainly better than I can, but I'd love to hear you describe maybe the work of the volunteers, what's involved, you know, how long are people on the ships and what's the work they're doing and what's that experience of like of getting so close to these campaigns, of being out on the open ocean, of really standing between illegal fishing vessels and the wildlife that Sea Shepherd is trying to protect. Can you just paint that picture for us a bit? I have a friend, that's how we were connected, who worked on a Sea Shepherd ship. Some of her stories are amazing. And I got just a tiny fraction. So I'd love to hear you speak about that. Sure. I'll, I'll try my best. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it's an incredible and frankly life-changing experience. And if you or your listeners ever have the opportunity to volunteer on one of our ships, I, I highly recommend it. It's, um, it's an experience unlike any other. So in terms of personalities and personnel. Uh, We have people, volunteers, crew members from all walks of life all around the world in a very, in a variety of roles. It it takes, it really does take a village to run one of these campaigns. So of course we need a really, you know, strong leader. We have a captain on board. We have officers helping the captain in the bridge. Um, We have engineers, of course, who keep our our ship running and make sure that everything is, you know, safe and, and uh, we can continue to operate. We have our deck crew. The deck crew do a lot of great work ranging from, um, you know, keeping the boat clean, and in good condition. They're also often the ones who are on the front lines in campaigns where we're directly doing something like retrieving nets. It's often the deck crew that are out there getting their hands dirty in the best possible way. Hmm. Um, we have an amazing chef, or depending on the size of the, she- of the ship, we sometimes have multiple chefs on our, on our ships. Um, all of our ships are fully plant-based. 
because you know, know animal that. agriculture is a yeah. leading cause to of environmental change, and um, and also you know it doesn't really make sense to be saving one animal while consuming another. So while we're on our ships, all of us are fully plant based, consume a fully plant based diet, which is amazing and delicious and good fuel for your body. We also have media crew on board, which is usually where I step in. So we have. Um, videographers, photographers, um, you know, like Paul Watson, our founder has said before, the most powerful weapon that we have on our vessels is the camera. Um, you know, our ability to bring these stories to, you know, the attention of the world is in itself a powerful tool, activism tool to allow us to help, you know, really change the outcome of these of these stories. Um, so we've got media crew on board. I'm sure I'm missing some more people. Um, essentially though, we've got a variety of incredibly talented individuals coming from all around the world, working together to help make this each campaign and each ship, uh, as successful as can be. Now it's a little bit of an interesting experience from a human perspective, um, in that, you know, you're working long hours and a very intense environment. Everybody's passionate. Everybody's here because they care. They care so much that they've uprooted their lives, their comfort, oftentimes their job, you know, to, to do something and to truly make an impact and to help change the world for the better. And so that in itself, I find incredibly inspiring and motivating. I think our crew and our volunteers are some of the most incredible people I've ever had the privilege of knowing. But it's also really interesting that, you know, we've got people from all around the world. People sometimes, you know, in their 70s and people who've just turned 18 and just barely passed the threshold to be allowed on our ships. It's an interesting experience to watch people come together and work together and form relationships and friendships that extend well beyond, you know, the duration of the campaigns themselves. I'm, I have an enormous, you know, extended Sea Shepherd family around the world from my time on the ships and I'm immensely grateful for that. So let's zoom in on some of the current campaigns that are ongoing in Sea Shepherd. I'd love to hear you describe, if you would, a couple examples of ongoing campaigns and, you know, what's at stake here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have a number of campaigns currently underway all around the world that I'm happy to talk to you about. I guess uh, the first one that comes to mind is one of our longest running campaigns, uh, which is taking place in Mexico in the upper Gulf of California. And this is our effort to protect the world's most endangered marine mammal, the vaquita porpoise. Um, so we call this Operation Milagro, Milagro being Spanish for miracle. And it, it, I think the vaquita itself is a bit of a miracle, but I, I'm not sure of the initial reasoning behind the name, but I guess the feeling was that it would take a miracle to save this animal, um, which is really facing extinction within our lifetimes. A few years ago, there were less than 100 vaquitas left. Then there were less than 30. At present, uh, there's less than 20 vaquitas left. This is an endemic animal that can only be found in a small region in Mexico's upper Gulf of California. California. It's a porpoise. It's a type of porpoise. Um, and it's, I don't know if you've seen one before, but they're absolutely adorable. They are, they're small. They kind of look like they're smiling. They've got like black circles around their eyes and their lips. And they're sometimes referred to as the panda of the sea because they are absolutely beautiful and cute. And unfortunately they're facing imminent extinction due to illegal fishing. So being marine mammals, the vaquita, uh, they have to come up to the surface to breathe air, like all cetaceans, whales, and dolphins. And um, their livelihood is threatened because they become entangled in illegal gill nets that are being placed in the area. When um, the vaquitas get tangled in these nets, they can't surface and they ultimately end up drowning under the ocean. Now, nobody's actually trying to kill the vaquita. They are unfortunately... Um, the loss of the vaquita is an unfortunate consequence of some illegal fishing that's happening. They're bycatch, essentially, in these nets that are being placed uh, to catch another endangered species called the totoaba. And the totoaba is a type of large sea, uh, sorry, large sea bass um, that can be found in the area, and its swim bladders are on high demand in the Chinese black market. So they sell for 
tens of thousands of dollars on the Chinese black market and are often referred to as the cocaine of the sea due to the exorbitant prices that they fetch. Um, and because there is such a large amount of money involved, of course, nefarious characters become involved as well, too. And the cartel is often involved in, you know, the trade of these uh, swim bladders. So the vaquita, who's just living its life in the only place in the world where it can survive, unfortunately, is approximately the same size as these totoaba fish. And so the nets that are designed to catch and kill Totoaba are also perfect killing machines for the vaquita and they become entangled. And that's the reason this, uh, this species is now facing extinction. The Sea Shepherd has been out there working with local authorities since 2015 to help initially to, first of all, verify that the vaquita does in fact still exist because one of the arguments against its protection is that it's already extinct, so why bother? Um, but I can assure you that it's not extinct. Um, we work with world-class vaquita researchers, and as recently as this last fall, uh, we took part in a vaquita survey out there in the waters to actual get some, actually get some visual sightings of the vaquita. I believe we saw six to eight adults and one to two calves during that time, which is, um, I mean, it couldn't make our hearts any happier. It's proof positive that this animal still exists, and we will continue fighting for them. So, we, so we work with scientists to establish the location and size of the remaining population so that we can help to guide conservation efforts. In the early years of Operation Milagro, we were very involved in directly removing these nets from the water that were, that were the cause of the decline of the species. From there, we've evolved even further to where we now have a very active collaborative partnership with the government of Mexico and work closely with them to help detect any illegal fishing activities and any nets present in the water, um, the Navy swoops in and um, prevents these nets from ever being placed in the Vaquita Refuge, which is wow. a UNESCO-recognized um, and federally protected area. So it's evolved from like, you know, an early attempt to see whether this seemingly mythological creature still in fact exists to getting our hands really dirty. And I spent many years out there myself pulling in. We've Sea Shepherd has retrieved over a thousand illegal gill nets um, from that area over the years, directly saving the lives of over 400 animals that were entangled in those nets. And indirectly saving countless more. Um, if not for those efforts, I have no doubt that the vaquita would already be extinct but it's not. And um, now we're at the point where not only are we not, we're no longer removing those nets, but we're actually preventing them from ever entering the habitat in the first place, which is, which is ultimately where we need to be. And it's, and it's wonderful to see it um, progressing in this, in this manner. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really great, clear sort of zoomed in example of what's going on around the ocean where people want a, what is perceived as a product, something that is, a commodity in the way that the world treats it, you know, unfortunately, in some cases, um, in all cases, I guess. And there, essentially, there's a market for this thing. And in order to catch this creature, we must sacrifice so many more. And, you know, bycatch, the term that you used, dolphins, sharks, uh, every manner of sea turtles of animal gets caught in these nets around the world. What's unique about IUU fishing or illegal fishing where Sea Shepherd is primarily focused and why is it so important for us to be aware of these illegal fishing practices and the impact that they have? Oh, well, that's a big question, and I'll, I'll give you, I guess, a big answer to it. But um, first of all, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing is absolutely one of the biggest threats facing our oceans today. And to give you a sense of why um, we focus on IUU fishing as, as a primary focus of Sea Shepherd these days, I can give you an example. So in 2017, uh, Sea Shepherd, off the coast of Africa, so in partnership with the Liberian Ministry of National Defense, located a notorious fishing vessel called the Libico 2. This vessel was internationally blacklisted on three different lists. The Libico 2 was licensed to fish using longline fishing gear, but when we actually had boots on the ground and eyes on the water and officials boarded the vessel, they discovered that it was actually deploying gill nets. So gill nets, again, we just talked about them in relation to the vaquita. These are 
enormous, large rectangular nets that sit underneath the surface of the water. They can be several kilometers in length at times, responsible for a staggering amount of bycatch. Um, and it's a far more destructive method of fishing than the long lines that this fish was actually uh, that this vessel was actually licensed to fish with. Bycatch, of course, is the capture and kill of non-target species and can include whales, dolphins, sea turtles, rays. So when officials boarded the Labico 2, they found that it was illegally fishing for sharks using gill nets, and it was fishing for sharks to produce shark liver oil. You can only imagine how many sharks it takes to produce shark liver oil. Um, it's estimated that this vessel, this one ship, was responsible for killing 500,000 sharks every year. Oh um, so with support from Sea Shepherd... Liberian officials arrested the vessel and all of these violations, and to date, it hasn't returned to sea. So that was back in 2017. Um, so you do the math, you know, four years later, just by stopping this one illegal vessel, we've saved the lives of over two million sharks. That's one vessel. Um, so you can see, I mean, it kind of both gives a sense of the scope of the problem of illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing just with that one vessel. And it also really speaks to the impact that Sea Shepherd can have by focusing our efforts in working in national waters to, to prevent illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. And this is exactly why, you know, we've our focus these days is um, in working with par in partnership with governments to collaborate to help them in their in their efforts to protect their own national waters. Um, oftentimes, the laws exist to protect these waters, but the resources may not. Um, and Sea Shepherd does have a vessel. We have amazing crews. You know, we have a fleet all around the world. So by collaborating with governments, we're able to help them to keep boots on the ground, eyes on the water, um, and you know, detect these sorts of uh, situations and hopefully put a stop to them as was the case with the Libigo too. Wow. That number just floors me. And, you know, and that's just the sharks. If there are these, if there are these nets that are two kilometers long and all of the bycatch there, I can't even imagine the number of lives saved beyond just the number of sharks. Cause it's not like you can just, you know, pull up a massive net like that and just pick everything else out except for the sharks, you know, it's. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, um, I mean, that was, my experience many years on Operation Milagro, protecting the vaquita as well, too. It's um, during the years when we were retrieving nets, it's, uh, it's an emotionally taxing situation. So prevention is key, right? If we can get those ships to ever... To pre if we can prevent them from deploying those nets in the first place, you know, that's where we need to be to really, to really have an impact here. And the best way to do that is to work in collaboration with the governments that are making the laws to help enforce those laws. And I think there was another campaign that you and I had spoken about briefly that's happening sort of in the Galapagos. And uh, I think it's a Chinese distant water fishing vessel that is primarily focused on you know, harvesting squid, but I'd love to hear you speak about that campaign as well. Yeah, so this, this past summer, Sea Shepherd set out on a mission uh, to investigate the Chinese distant water squid fishing fleet, um, which is an enormous industrial fishing fleet, and very little is known about this fleet. Um, so during this investigation, Univision and the Associated Press were on board with us to, to see what we could find out about their activities. Um, and so during this investigation, we managed to visually cite or ground truth 30 vessels in the enormous fleet and detected numerous uh, maritime violations on those vessels. I would imagine that each of these 30 vessels is huge. Enormous. Yeah, we do have, um, I believe it's on our website, we made a mini documentary called Distant Waters that kind of provides a more in-depth overview of that entire campaign. But some of the stuff that we saw on board was was shocking. So ships were broadcasting multiple electronic identification numbers from the same ship, um, which... So, you know, it's kind of hard to tell who that is and where they are, um, or they'd be broadcasting numbers that didn't match up to the actual ship. So one, one ship was broadcasting, indicating that it was a search and rescue aircraft, when in fact it was an industrial fishing ship, um, which is an indication that there might be some suspicious activity going on, right? And the thing with these ships as well, too, is that they can remain out at sea for several years at a time without docking, um, which 
brings up issues relating to human rights concerns as well as environmental concerns um, and possible slave labor as well too. So um, one uh, on one of the vessels, an Indonesian crew member attempted to communicate with our crew, particularly when he found out that we had American press on board and he was telling them that he wanted to go home. And he asked, this was last summer, he asked whether COVID had reached the United States yet. So that gives you an indication of how long this man had been on board without any access to external communications. My gosh. Yeah, it's a whole other aspect of this conversation. Exactly. That is so crucial. Um, I watched that documentary and I remember that man saying, I want to go home. And the Sea Shepherd crew saying, are you all right? Are you all right? And him saying, you know, essentially, they are, it's slave labor, yeah. as you said. And oh my gosh, just the idea of being out at sea for that long without docking. The mental health implications for anybody are pretty... It's it's terrifying stuff. It really is terrifying stuff. And again, but it really, it speaks to the importance of ground truthing is kind of like the buzzword for it, but actually having boots on the ground and somebody actually being there, you know, like on the surface with the signals that are being sent out, maybe everything looks great, but without actually having ships in the water to see what's going on, like we really don't know what's going on out there. We collectively, you know? Yeah. And you know, that brings up a point for me that it almost is like this whole movement is ground truthing in a way. I mean, the films like Seaspiracy and Cowspiracy, if you want to talk about animal agriculture on land and films that feature Sea Shepherd, the work that Sea Shepherd is doing, it's all in a sense, ground truthing. It's all these things that are going on outside of our awareness so much of the time. And so anything that is bringing transparency, visibility into what's actually happening behind our supply chains, legal and illegal, frankly, is so important now so that we can act from an informed place. Because otherwise we just think, oh, you know, great, yeah, a whole pack of shrimp for it's so cheap and we don't even think about why it's so cheap or where it came from or what was involved in getting it to us. And, you know, without these efforts to sort of <laughs> ground truth the industry as well as these illegal fishing vessels i mean we don't know so yeah it's just crucial and it's all connected i mean i i can remember distinctly standing on the shores of taiji in japan with ali from seaspiracy you know day after day we'd watch this bloody massacre and try to make sense of the why not even sure if there is a why that could possibly you know justify this you know and and then connecting it to the massive overfishing tuna fleet or tuna port, you know, one town over, you know, there, there are consequences, sometimes extending beyond what the consumer could even possibly, you know, imagine, you know, the loss of one species is, or the depletion of one species, the overfishing of one species leading to, you know, the mass slaughter of dolphins. It's cause and effect. Yeah. And it just speaks even more to the importance of, increasing our awareness and sort of accepting nothing less than change, you know, making the change ourselves and those choices that we have and then going bigger and working within our communities to raise awareness and then doing everything we can to st step in between these practices and advocate for a better path before we say goodbye to more and more species as we've been speaking about. Hi, everyone. We're going to break here and bring you more of our conversation with Tamara of Sea Shepherd, as well as our post-interview wrap-up, takeaways, challenge, and what you can do to make an impact today in part two, which we'll release in two weeks. We covered so much ground with Tamara that we felt it deserved two parts so that you can really take in what we've learned and heard so far and then be ready for more in a couple weeks Tune in to part two to learn more about how massive illegal fishing has become and how every consumer throughout the world is directly involved, why the health of the ocean is crucial to the health of the planet, the best and the worst that Tamara has seen during her time on the open oceans, and what we can all do to be part of the solution. We look forward to sharing part two with you soon.